mentioned earlier in our service, on, on Tuesday I'll arrive over at the Holden Hills Golf Course about 6.30 in the morning, and they'll get us all kind of set up, and we'll be out on the course no later than 7, probably like 10 or 7. And by 6.52, I realize why I don't play golf for a living. You know, um, you know they talk about having, to, having the right stance and good balance, going to address the ball just right. If it's a shorter club, a little further back in the stance, and right swing plane movement, good follow-through. I have problems with all of those things. You know, and so some go left. Some go right, some roll just a little ways down the course, you know, kind of thing. Every once in a while, I hit a good shot, because miracles still happen. God just uses that to remind me every once in a while. But, you know, all that up that, that when we don't get the fundamentals right, almost everything that follows after that gets messed up. You know, if you don't have the fundamentals in a, in a golf swing of the right stance and swing and et cetera, the ball's not going to go where you want it to, and your score's not going to be anywhere close to what it's supposed to be. Everything that follows gets messed up. Now, golf is kind of a trivial thing to talk about, but what about something a little bit more serious? Let's talk about maybe marriage for a minute. If you get the fundamentals of marriage messed up, the, the aftershocks can be, li- can be devastating. You know, often people go into marriage and, and they say, the, the purpose of marriage is to make me happy. So my spouse's job is to make me happy. That, that's not the right fundamental about marriage. Biblically, the fundamental of marriage is to go into a relationship in which you love the other person completely. You give all of yourself to the other person. And one of the byproducts of you doing that and them doing that is that you're happy. But if you don't get the fundamentals right, everything that follows after that gets messed up. I've been thinking a lot about that kind of, uh, of the importance of fundamentals. And, and one of the things that strikes me is that at the, at the foundation of our journey with God is our faith in God. And if we don't get our faith right, almost all of the spiritual life that we try to build on it is going to get messed up. So I, I want to start a series today <clears throat> entitled Ground Zero, Getting Faith Right. And we'll be looking at this over the next several weeks. We'll be looking at faith from lots of different perspectives. Today I want to start looking at the nature of faith. But I hope for us to, to examine the issue of faith so at the foundation of our journey with God we have our faith right. But let me start with this question. How would you define faith? This is not a rhetorical question. I'm looking for you to respond to me. What is faith? How do you define faith? Believing without seeing. I heard the word trust over here, okay? Uh, it specifically, probably means trust in God, I would think, but th- th- that's, that's the idea. What is faith? Okay. So it's having this incredible confidence in God and in his promises to us. I mean, what is faith? Come on, you got, you got, I mean, I said in the first service, you guys get up early to get here at 9 o'clock. I mean, you could have slept in. I mean, you're the, you're the people who exercise in faith. What is faith? I mean, we're going to pass the plate in a little while, and you guys are going to put a lot of money in the plate, I hope. You know, and why are we doing that? Okay, belief. Okay, yes, Mike. Okay, that sense of trust, assurance. Okay, what is faith? Believing in the promises of God. Okay. Persistence. Yeah, a sense of endurance, being with it. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, faith is a response, and we give back to God. Somebody's pointing at somebody over here. So, that he is or our faith is. I wish my faith was unwavering and unchanging, but, you know. Yeah. So we have, the, again, this, it's this, this trust, this confidence, this assurance that God is who he says he is. He's going to stay that way, and we can, we can rely on it. It's interesting. I, I want to take a look today 
at some some verses from Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Hebrews 11 with me. If you're going to use one of our pew Bibles, which you're certainly welcome to do, you'll find it in the chair in front of you um, on the rack. You're going to find the book of Hebrews, this particular passage we're looking at, chapter 11, uh, on page 1022. Just a bit of context before I read these three verses for us. I mean, some of you who are familiar with the scriptures and with the church and those kinds of things and have been around for a while, you're going to immediately recognize that this chapter is basically like the hall of fame of faith. The, the author of the book of Hebrews, inspired by God, tells us about a number of people who exercised faith in God, and they range everywhere from Abraham and Moses to guys like Samson and Gideon and everything in between. And, and, he, and he tells us about these people who exercised such great faith and either experienced tremendous victories or proved themselves faithful even to the most difficult of moments. And as a result of that, as he begins chapter 12, he encourages us to lay aside all the encumbrances that so hinder us in our faith because we're surrounded by these kinds of witnesses who are encouraging us along. But at the beginning of the chapter, he kind of follows up from chapter 10 where he's been talking about the role, the place of faith, and how it's our means and our assurance to enter boldly into God's presence. And he feels the need to give us at least an indication of the nature of faith. I I wouldn't say that these verses give us a technical definition of faith, but they show us the fruit that comes from having a true faith. It shows us the nature of a true faith at work within us. And I want to read just together these first three verses of of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and then just make a few comments for us about the nature of faith. Now, faith, God tells us, is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it our ancestors, I think I actually like the word elders better, for by it our elders were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. Let me challenge you to, to memorize Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. I think they're great verses for you to have at your permanent disposal. I don't think you'll find them hard to memorize. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it, our ancestors were approved. Now, let me make just a, a, several statements about this. And, and the first thing that I really want to point out about the nature of faith to us is that faith is what allows God to grant us His approval. Look at verse 2. It said, it was by their faith that the ancestors of old, the elders of old, the forefathers of the faith were approved by God, that they were made acceptable to God. They were able to enter into a relationship with God. It was by their faith in God that they were able to be granted God's approval. Now, I've tried to choose these words very carefully because faith is not a work. It's not like we have to get to a certain level of faith before God can accept us. Somehow or another that by our, our exercising of faith, we somehow earn God's favor. We, we get to a place where we merit God's approval of us. That's not what faith does for us. Faith creates the environment, the atmosphere, if you will, where God can give us his gift of relationship. You know, Paul put it this way in Ephesians. For, he says, it's by, it's by grace that you are saved through faith. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, it, 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 our faith isn't somehow a, a work that we, by which we earn God's favor. And he says, oh, well, you've been exercising faith long enough. Now I can accept you. Welcome to the family. It doesn't work that way. But without faith in our lives, there's no way for God to apply his grace to us. 
and bring us into a relationship with us. It's no way, there's no way for God to say, I approve of you and to bring us into relationship with him. So it's, it's, it's by faith that we create this atmosphere in our lives in which God's able to grant us the greatest gift we can ever experience, which is a relationship with him. So ultimately what we're talking about here is saving faith. When we're talking about earning the approval of God, we're not talking about exercising faith to do great things. We're talking about entering into a relationship with God, having saving faith. And I think there's a lot of confusion about what it means to have a saving faith. And, and I want to point out a couple of aspects to you this morning about the nature of this faith that creates the arena in our lives where God can grant us the gift of his approval. And, and I want to go to a, a familiar story to many of us. It's the story of Doubting Thomas out of John chapter 20. Let me just kind of retell the story to you. And many of you know this is after the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had been born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. He had entered into Jerusalem at the end of his life and had been offered up as a sacrifice. He had died on the cross. He had been buried. And he was resurrected. And in his resurrection state, he appeared to the disciples on a number of occasions. And he, entered, he, he appeared to all the disciples except for Judas and Thomas. For whatever reasons, they were gathered together, and Thomas didn't happen to be there, and Jesus just appeared in their midst. And later, when the other disciples, the ten, were telling Thomas, you wouldn't believe it. We saw Jesus. You know, we could see the marks in his hands. We could see the stuff. It was incredible. You know, we, and he said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it with my own eyes. He says, if I'm not able to see the marks in his hand and actually to touch them with my own finger and to place my hand into his side. He says, I'm not going to believe it until I see that. Shortly thereafter, eight days later, they're gathered together. The doors are locked. There's no way for anybody to get in or out, and Jesus just appears in their midst. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says, Hey, Thomas, come over here. Have a look. Go ahead, touch. Stick, stick your hand right in, right in there in a hole. And what is Thomas's response to him in verse 28? This is exactly what he says, My Lord and my God. I'm going to use that simple response of Thomas to meeting the resurrected Christ to describe to you what I think is the heart and soul of a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And first of all, there is a, there's a volitional aspect to a saving faith. It is a choice. It was interesting in the first service, and many people talked about the choice to follow God, the choice to believe in God. When they were talking about the nature of faith, when, when Thomas is saying to, to Jesus, you are my Lord, He's acknowledging Jesus' right to be his master, to be sovereign over him. You know, and, it, and it's a submission of Thomas's will to Jesus' will, to God's will for his life. And so that, that's a choice. It's a volitional choice that we make in our lives. And, and we cannot have a saving faith in Jesus Christ if we have not made the choice to become followers of Jesus Christ. And I mean followers. Faith is not an emotional reaction that God somehow gives us a a warm fuzzy. But it's a volitional choice to say, I lay down my will, I take up God's will. It's a volitional choice. He says, my Lord. And then he says, my God. And that is a, it's a confession of faith, but there's, there's an intellectual aspect behind that. He's saying, I believe that you are the only Son of God. It is an intellectual choice. It is the choice to believe. And, it, and it, it comes with all kinds of stuff with it. You know, it's one of my favorite theological words, stuff. You know, but it's, the, it's the, the working out of God's plans and purposes and promises throughout the Old Testament, the arrival of the, the Messiah in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ in the, in the manger in Bethlehem. It's His perfect life. It's the offering up as the, as the 
offer of the atoning sacrifice on the cross. It's his burials, his resurrections, his ascension. It's all that stuff. But it's the choice to believe those things are true. That we acknowledge. We have this conviction that Jesus truly is the Son of God. It's an intellectual aspect. And if we don't have this volitional and intellectual connection to the truth of God, we really don't have faith, saving faith. It's not just a, a warm sense of God's love, and I hope I experience more of it, but it's, but it's this volitional choice, this act of will to place ourselves into the hands of God. That's how we win the approval of God. That's when we earn the right. No, let me say this. The way we receive the gift to be called a friend of God is when we have chosen and we have believed in God. The second aspect I wanted you to see about the nature of faith in this passage it comes out of the very first phrase. It's now faith is a reality of what is hoped for. You know, it's, whenever you try to translate one language into another, you always have a lot of struggles. We experienced that when we were in Rwanda. Because often they wouldn't have a Rwandan word that matched our English word. Or our English word could have several different meanings, and depending upon how they interpreted it, it could go in lots of different directions. That's true when you translate the Greek into English as well. And the book of Hebrews was written in Greek originally. And this word reality that's in there, for faith is the reality of what is hoped for. Is a, it's an interesting term. They, they often use this to refer to, to having title to something. You have, like you have a title deed to your home that the bank owns and that you live in. And you pay them for the right to live in. But you have a title deed to that. Or you have a title to your car. Or, you know, and, and so it shows that you own it. Now he says faith here is our title to what we, are, what we hope for. And one of the things I would say to you, is that if you and I possess true faith, and the nature of faith will work itself out in our lives, that we will, we will find ourselves in a position where we have current possession of the future realities that God is bringing to us in Jesus Christ. Faith puts us in current possession of future realities. We, we, throughout the rest of the chapter, he's going to display what that looks like. These guys in, in the Old Testament who were the forefathers of the faith for us, who demonstrated things to us. What, he, he looks at their lives up and down. He says, Abraham. Abraham's in, in Haran. Married, doing well. Business is growing. He's got 75 servants. God says, hey, I want you to pack up and I'm going to go to a place that I'm going to show you. I'm promising you a land. And based upon that future reality, he went and he acted as though it was his current possession. You know, the people of God didn't come into possession of that land for over five hundred years. Yet in that moment, Abraham acted as as though he already possessed it, and he packed up his family and he moved. Or even simple Abel here at the beginning of the list. You know, he he knows that his real home is with God in the future, and so even though he, like his brother Cain, is struggling to make ends meet and things are hard, he offers up a choice sacrifice to God as an act of worship. Because he always possesses that relationship with God. Noah who he cites in here. You know, they made, they made a movie recently about like a comedian guy building an ark, right? You know, and he looked like a fool through the whole movie until the dam broke, you know, and down it came. You know, they couldn't do it with a real flood, so they had a, the, the dam broke. And then away they go. I mean, imagine Noah for decades building this ark in the middle of dry land. What, what and, and the only reason he did so is because he was in the current possession of what he knew was a future reality, that the rain was coming. That the only way that he and his family and all of humanity were eventually going to be preserved was through the ark. It was his current possession, even though it was a future reality. It's, and, and, and faith puts us in that position where you and I can possess now the pardon of God. That you and I can possess now 
the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is already at hand. That you and I, because of our relationship with God that's been granted to us by our faith, already are living eternal life. It's not something in the future. It's our current possession. It's now. See, faith puts us in a place where we have current possession of future realities. You marvel at it, you know, maybe, maybe kind of bringing out some of this sense and the way it just transforms the w- way we, we lived. I mean, we were talking about this a little bit in my men's group on Tuesday morning and how having real possession of future realities just transforms the way you, you respond to opportunities in life, in particular to work life and definitions of success and what does it really mean to have enough and all these kinds of issues. But, you know, I got to think, you know, when you, when you already own the Ferrari, you're not too impressed by the Ford Focus anymore, right? You know, when, when you're already living in the 17,000-square-foot mansion with the in, indoor swimming pool, you really don't covet the raised ranch across town anymore, do you? I mean, when we already possess the best, the things that are second best don't have the same draw on us. You know, do, I mean, don't you marvel? I mean, what was it, about a year ago or so, it was in the news that, that Sandra Bullock's husband was unfaithful to her. And, and I don't know, maybe some of you were like me. I'm thinking, what an idiot. I mean, she's beautiful. She's successful, and she's wicked rich. What are you doing? You know, you're, you're already, what could be better than that kind of idea, you know? And I've got better than that, I'll tell you that, so. <laughs> so anyways. <laughs> Where was I in my notes? I forget it. When, when. When, you possess, when we take the future that God's offered us, eternity with Him, no more tears, you know, and it's our current possession, transforms the way we live life. You know, some of you saw the movie Chariots of Fire. Remember that movie about this English runner, Eric Lytle, grown up as a child of missionaries in China, came to England for schooling, fell in love with running, was in position to win a gold medal. The only problem was that the race was on a Sunday. And because of the possession he already had of his relationship with God, winning the gold medal wasn't that important to him that he would violate his conviction to run on Sunday. That's what it's like to live with the current possession of future realities. That's what true faith is like. One last point. Faith makes spiritual realities certain. Look at that little second half of the phrase there in verse 1. Now, faith is a reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. He elaborates just a little bit more in verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. It's a spiritual reality. We can't touch it. We can't feel it. But we're certain that it's true, and we can base our actions upon it. Just like creation happened by the spoken Word of God. You know, again, how do you illustrate this dynamic? I mean, and, and I thought about, Several people I've known along the way who knew that they were at health risk. These are guys who, you know, um, they were a little overweight, weren't exercising, smoked, eating poorly, had bad, bad genes. I mean, there was evidence in their life, their, their family extension, that they had cholesterol issues. And, and none of that stuff phased them. They just kept living the same way. And then they would have a heart attack and have to have bypass surgery. And when what was an unseen reality inside their veins became certain on the surface in the form of a heart attack and bypass surgery, out went the red meat, in came the tofu. Things just changed. Some of you know people like that. When you and I understand that spiritual realities are really real, they're certain, things like spiritual warfare, that our struggle really isn't about 
with our neighbor next door that we're having an issue with or the guy who has an office across the hall or, or the fight with our wife or the things with our children, but our, our real battle is between us and these evil forces that are trying to take us under. When we understand that spiritual reality, it changes the way we do life. When we understand that we are laying up heavenly treasures, it changes our attitude towards all of our priorities and what we're about. When we understand that prayer really does change things, and it's the avenue by which God gives us a peace that passes understanding. It changes the way we do life. When we understand the, the value of contentment, it creates change in us. When we understand, when faith takes fruit in our lives and its true nature comes out where we, we, where we understand the spiritual realities are really certain, then our lives really begin to change. And that's when faith becomes paradoxical. Now, I know that's a big word for me, you know, but paradoxical. It's what allows Paul and Silas to sing hymns of joy in the prison, even after they just had the stew beaten out of them by the people of Philippi. Because they see spiritual realities, and they know they're certain. It's how you and I can rejoice in trials and testing, like the book of James tells us too. Because we understand the spiritual reality that's underneath it. It's what gives us the ability, as was mentioned earlier, to endure and to persevere, even though we're ill-treated as people who profess and seek to model our faith to others. It's what gives us the confidence to give to God in the midst of our scarcity, like the widow who put her two mites in the offering basket in the temple. It's when those kinds of things happen, when the spiritual realities are made certain that faith is really happening in our lives. It's what gives us the ability to keep proclaiming our faith in Christ, even when the world is saying, be quiet. Religion should be a personal thing. We can see the true nature of faith because it is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. And by it, our ancestors and we alike enjoy God's approval. Is that the kind of faith that you have today? If not, let me in the name of God, because he's the one who started this invitation, challenge you to make the choice and the intellectual commitment to be a person of faith. Let's pray together. God, we don't want to get faith wrong. We're going to stake all of this life and all of eternity on it. We want to get faith right. Use these words and the words that lie ahead in the following weeks to teach us your truth, that we can get faith right. And with that experience, your best. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.